Greetings and welcome to another episode of Comparing Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me as always is my co-host and co-DM, Miguel. It is the 16th of June, 2020, and it is episode 19, session 18. I think I have that right. Yeah, it should be. Uh, my session 18, Operation Golden Ray, also the start of Act 3 of my campaign, Empox Finest. We're shooting off into the into the new act right away, which I didn't really preface at all. Part of it is because I wasn't really looking at ahead at all. But the other thing is that, um, you know, maybe you could kind of tell that, that that last operation was an end of sorts because it ended with them taking down uh, the Nightside Eclipse dude, Mourner, who they'd been hunting for a bit. So, uh, I don't know. You're, you got your chapter seven, it says here? Yeah, that's right. And uh, as far as Minds of Metal and Wheels part two, that campaign at this point is sort of entering act two of this story. Is this a situation where it's like a three-act structure to your game? Yes, I didn't really like plot it out thinking of... But when you, know, you say it's uh, act X two, it's like act two of three in the traditional Yeah, exactly, sense. exactly. I, I wasn't really thinking of it in terms of like, okay... You know, we're there. There are twenty-one chapters, and so one to seven is Act One, and so on and so forth. It just sort of just so happens that, in this case, we're at the end of Act One, and yeah, we are about a third of the way through the campaign. Yeah, I definitely do that kind of meticulous planning beforehand. Um, like, okay, that this will be this act, and these parts will be part of this act and whatnot and like i sort of map it out beforehand but i mean uh looking at the sort of overall notes for mpox finest i don't know i feel like maybe i have consistently done like six acts in each of my campaigns um, so technically this is like the start of the third of six acts, but like, I'm not even sure if that's correct. That's just me like glancing at my overall notes and saying like, cause I'm pretty sure it was six acts for the, like, I know the one I'm running right now, I'm on act five of six and the last one I ran was six acts, I believe, but this one might've been more, I don't remember. I'll maybe I'll resurface that, that, uh, information at some point in this quest. So, should I start or do you want to start? Oh, you should start by all means. I'm excited right. to see where yours is going. Man. Knowing that we're at sort of the, a key moment well, in the story. Well, it's, it's the beginning. It's the dawn of a new era. Let me just get something. I gotta get my old tome that I put all my notes in because at this time so as i mentioned it's the start of act three i just finished act two but more importantly it was just around christmas and uh for christmas i got a big old cool tome that uh, has like clasps to fasten it shut and now it's actually quite a desiccated tome like it still looks impressive but 
the spine is all like ripped up and like reinforced with electrical tape and stuff um and it's got like like you know uh cloth bookmarks attached to the spine and stuff so you can always mark two places in the book i used to use all that stuff it's even got little um folder compartments on the in inside and and backside uh interior um like the inside of the cover and the the back anyway all this to say around this time i had gotten a notebook which i then transferred my notes to and so uh this is the beginning of basically the first time in this podcast that i have been speaking of the story of Empok's finest with the benefit of actual physical notes that I can refer to apart from like the general overview notes, which are just like operation blank. That was the one where this happened. Operation blank. That was the one where this happened. This one has like my actual notes that I was using at the time that I wrote at the time to help plan out these sessions. And compared to, I, I love that stuff, man. That's one of those like, that is a unique artifact. It's like a piece of memorabilia from your your campaign. Yeah, I you... love that stuff. I still have like my first D and D binder from grade school with all like my crappy character drawings and badly made character sheets and things like that in it. It's always fun to look back on it. I'll tell you, man, my my writing used to be a lot worse, and this is not even like from a long time ago. This is just like three notebooks ago, basically. But uh, my writing is like. Uh, infinite, infamously tiny and neat, I guess you could say. Um, and that is something that I guess developed over the course of owning this book because at the start, it's some messy-ass writing. Um, and yeah, uh, like relative to the notes that I have, that I keep now, uh, they're pretty sparse. Um, but... Another thing that we're going to see this session from me is that uh, around that same Christmas, I also got the Dungeon Master's Guide. And so now I can finally stop talking about how, you know, I was running 5e with what I had and just like monsters and sort of doing my best. I finally had some real sense of guidance for what I was doing and just like, you know, something that's come up before, like uh, magic items. I previously had a ton of crazy magic items i still do at this point in the campaign but at this point in the campaign i now have a book that says hey these are some reasonable magic items and i can at least like measure that against what i created it's um, kind of like when uh, i finally got a copy of d20 past and suddenly stuff like you know how much damage a flintlock rifle does or stats for steampunk automatons and things suddenly i have access to them so that part of the campaign becomes that much more filled in yeah exactly um so yeah this was something that i had been kind of been waiting for well not really waiting for obviously i wasn't like sitting on my hands just waiting for my D to improve i, I wasn't waiting for the dmg to come out um but it's something that in the course of this podcast, we have been sort of working towards in terms of, uh, you know, getting to this point where I'm not flying quite so blind. So, um, man, a uh, bunch of stuff to cover here, I guess. But so let's 
just like recap last time how the previous act ended was Mourner, the Nightside Eclipse Conqueror, was defeated. His uh, magical advisor, Carmen the Immortal, was uh, captured. And despite these victories, the human capital of Austin, uh, the human capital of Austin, was um, basically like heavily, like not annihilated, but like very badly, like a lot of it was destroyed in the course of this battle. Which also had an interesting note to it, which was that in the past, the Empok was always like this secret organization. And so in the past, the players had defended Austin, but they hadn't, Austin hadn't known about it. Whereas this time, everyone could kind of see uh, the Empok agents helping out. And so this sort of changed, you know, it's like in. Uh, in Hellboy 2, when Hellboy lets himself get seen and suddenly it's like the BPRD is out in the open. It's like suddenly the players have like, there's a chance people will know about them when they go to places because they've got a bit of a, a reputation in a, in a major event now. Now, I'm pretty sure, yeah, it's not at all in D&D 5th edition, but reputation... I'm trying to think of... It's definitely a thing in D20 Modern. I'm trying to remember if it really factors into 3.5. Do you remember? Um, I can say for 5th edition that um, it exists in terms of an an Adventurer's League thing where they are running this sort of like um, persistent league play. Uh, reputation is something you earn with your respective... Like there are the different official factions in the forgotten realms and so you can get little side missions when you're doing adventures league uh adventures which in turn get you rep and then that is like sort of like a, a faction currency you can use to get little upgrades in future adventures but it's all pretty regulated within the special campaign rules of the adventures league you know hmm interesting in d20 modern it's like it's sort of the most pointless stat for some reason it's on the character sheet there's a you know a reputation bonus that you get um and if your character is a high reputation bonus there is a greater chance that npcs will know them but as it even says in the source book here most of the time a hero doesn't decide to use his or her reputation the dm decides when a hero's reputation can be relevant to a scene or an encounter it all just always seemed very pointless to me to measure it that way. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, to I mean, derail. It, it's 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 relevant that you say that because I have been in the notes that I have prepared for the game of Dungeons and Dragons that I'm currently running in the like. So I have notes for upcoming sessions and in those notes, I have sort of tracked, like, okay, this will get the party bonus reputation with so-and-so or the, or this group or whatever. But, like, what you say is entirely something that has occurred to me a lot as well, is, like, this doesn't need to be an official thing. It's basically something I'm keeping track of in my head. Like Exactly. Like, ultimately, you can quest, just decide whether or not an NPC knows these characters, because... The players don't really need the additional insight of seeing the number, you know? Yeah, at this point, for me, it's just like, you know, if they do this side quest, then 
that will reach this character because it's relevant for, to them, you know? Like, that's basically what that idea of reputation breaks down to for me is, like, something I can keep track of in my head, you know? I don't need to... Uh, I'll basically remember, oh, they did something that would benefit this guy, so this guy would, like, be able to recognize them. The other thing is that these stories tend to be about, like, the big, like, like the top agents, like, the team. The party is always, like, the top team, like, the Avengers initiative of the Empok in the given campaign. So, like, as time goes on, it's just, like, everybody in the Empok is certainly going to recognize them. Um, uh, okay, so, at this point, um, basically, let me set up the framing device for this act is, is, first of all, the metal album that I will be uh, harvesting material from or taking inspiration from, as it were, for uh, this act. Act 3 is uh, an album called Screech Owl by the band Wold. That's W-O-L-D. And, um, I mean, so... It's, uh, how do, how do I put this? It, like, okay, the art and, like, the sound of this, it's just, like, it, a lot of the stuff I've been using, actually, has just been, like, very, um, the music itself is very dissonant and whatnot, um, but also, so this, like, I don't know, this band Wold, or this uh, this album is called Screech Owl. Basically, I took a lot of like stuff from the album and just like ran with it. So the idea for this act is that um, you know if you're looking at your map of Drail at home on the comparingcampaign.wordpress.com over in the first uh, entry, you look up in the northern northern Drail, and you see there's sort of like a, a range of mountains, and that's where the dwarven capital of Arten is located. It's sort of like built into the mountains in traditional dwarven style. And then um, you also have the Draconic Highlands uh, sort of beyond that, and that's like where uh, Dragonborn live and whatnot. Um, however... At this point in the storyline, the sort of political scenario is that there is this species of bird people called the Screech Owls, led by a tyrant by the name of Wold, and um, the first track on this album, it says, A Habitation of Dragons and a Court for Owls. Uh, I assume that was my inspiration for having the thrust of this act be that uh, the Screech Owls went to war with the Draconic Kingdoms of the Draconic Highlands, and that's basically what this act is about. Is basically is this a reference to Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul? No, I don't think any of this is. Honestly, I don't think it is. Um, <laughs> I really don't get that vibe from the album, and I certainly didn't get anything from that. But um, I did, you know, this was all sort of just like me fleshing out kingdoms that exist in Drail that I hadn't touched at all before. So like the Draconic Kingdoms, the Dwarven Kingdoms, and then these like 
I really I have a whole um subset of races that are like the avians that are like bird people but like I for this I was just zooming in on these screech owl guys with the idea that like this screech owl tribe had just like uh what was having a huge population boom they were spreading out of control and then they started the war with the dragonborn by inviting the dragonborn king Reuben to a banquet where they um man there was some like really horrific way they killed him that i i planned out it's like they had these um i i sort of took the thing from star trek in the conspiracy where they all eat the worms only of course they're eating worms because they're like bird people but then the worms that they gave to King Reuben the Dragonborn were like these weird barbed worms that like crawled up into his nostrils and like killed him. And then that's how they killed the Dragonborn King. And so the Dragonborn, like the the Dragon Kingdoms were all super mad about it. And it's like, oh, t- time to go to war with the Screech Owls. And so that's like sort of the backdrop of this act. But we start with Operation Golden Ray, which is about the MPOC just trying to do some damage control because, unfortunately, at about the same time as this happened with the Dragonborn and, uh, or, or the Draconic and Screech Owl um, conflict brewing, uh, there was also a bit of a miscommunication with... So, so again, if we have the Draconic Kingdom bordering like the dwarven kingdom with art and right in the mountains um the idea for this operation was that in the tension of the conflict a dwarven ambassador to the draconic kingdoms got like stuck like in draconic territory when things went like into lockdown basically and the empok wanting to like keep the chaos to a minimum because, like, it's bad enough we have a war between the Screech Owls and the Dragonborn. We do not also need the dwarves then going to war with the Draconic Kingdom over their missing uh, ambassador. So the party was sent in basically to inst- extract this ambassador um, so that the dwarves could be... Basically, so that things could be finessed such that the dwarves and the draconics could be allied against the screech owls because otherwise it's just going to be like a battle royale in the in the north of drail does that all make sense i hope it, I, I think so i, I follow i mean okay. owls versus dragons owls versus dragons dwarf ambassador at the dragon place when the stuff went down and then you know, you don't want the dwarves versus the dragons versus the owls. You'd rather have the dwarves and the dragons versus the owls because the owls are out of control. Um, you know, and it's up to the players to prevent like this all-out fiasco. Yeah, to 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 keep the dwarves on the right side, basically. So, so how did they handle it? Well, um, so I got some notes here. We got Operation Golden Ray. Also, uh. Second track title here is Ray of Gold, so I guess that's where that came from. Um, it's crazy how relevant all of these track names are now that I like look at them. Uh, like the third track is called "So That No Sword May Strike Him Down." 
I worked that into a thing where Wold had one of those classic villain things where it's like he can't be killed by traditional means. There has to be like a special way to kill him, you know? Nice. Um, so Operation Golden Ray, rescue Garland, Garlander, the Dwarven ambassador from behind Draconic Lines. Uh, apparently I introduced some new equipment to the Empok. Because it says here, new equipment, ghillie suits, uh, potions of climbing, and it says 36 bullets total each. I guess I gave everybody bullets? I don't know why. Did I? I didn't. I'm not sure about that one. But I'll tell you what, is ghillie suits, I know what happened there. is because I got this Dungeon Master's Guide, and I look at this thing, it's called a Cloak of Elven kind. And it requires of course the the cloak hashtag Marcy Playground. It um it uh I think it requires attunement. And I was like, hey, I got an idea for a cloak of elven kind that doesn't require attunement. It's called a ghillie suit. It's the same thing. It makes you hide in the bush, but it's not magic, so you you can have as many as you want. <laughs> unnecessary Man, uh, magic my friend i gotta say so the cloaking robe of elven kind is a favorite of mine it's referenced in pop culture marcy playground but uh there's a great use of it in the lord of the rings trilogy i can't remember i think it's the two towers it might be return of the king where the hobbits hide under their their elven cloak and it makes them look like a rock yeah, that definitely... That's what I always think of with the, the Robe of Elven kind. Not quite just a ghillie suit, but like having that, that sort of elven ability to blend in. Though I do love the like sort of military sim translation of that moment from Lord of the Rings. is like, no, it wasn't magic. They just had ghillie suits. <laughs> they're, they're some special ops <laughs> hobbits. Is that a really, really good camouflage outfit? Yeah. This is good stuff. Um, and then I also, so I guess the re I know also like I would have put potions of climbing here because naturally the party would have had access to everything that was in the player's handbook item guide because that's all like pretty common stuff. And so they would have already had access to healing potions regularly from uh, the MPOC. So including potions of climbing was actually what I realized was that potions of climbing are the potion other than the regular healing potion in the DMG that is listed as a common uh, magical item. So I just felt it like if they should be able to get one, they should be able to get the other, which it also goes towards that like thing we've talked about where it's like i always want the mpoc agents to be able to deploy how they want if they want to deploy by climbing up a cliffside they should have the means to do that um got some quick notes here i just noted down the npcs for this point in the game i guess because it says uh, npcs odium alsamasath coyote greasel morgwar arn Inkpin, uh, Mephisto, Therion, Carmen the Immortal, Wenton, Aku. Hey, I never talked about this. 
Um, Wait a minute. I had Aku. Aku. I had Aku. The shapeshifting from, master of darkness. Yeah, I had Aku, the shapeshifting master of darkness from from Samurai Jack in my D and D game. Um, it's something that like only recently changed actually, and and like changed because of insetting reasons. Um, because much like in real life, Aku was finally defeated. Um, but. Yeah, I, I've mentioned the city of Stormgate, the sort of southern capital in Drail. Uh, the sovereign of Stormgate is actually Aku, the shapeshifting master of darkness. And uh, he will continue to reign in Stormgate until, like, you know, basically... Does he unleash now. an unspeakable evil? Well, he's sort of, he's just like like... He just runs things in a pretty corrupt fashion, you know, like Stormgate's just like generally a place where it's like, you know, kind of like uh, like when Samurai Jack goes to that uh, gangster world. That's what I'm thinking of. It also had that ink pin guy, so that makes sense. Um, okay, Operation Golden Ray. I got some monsters here. I got, it says here, Two half-red dragon veterans guarding dwarven draconic border, uh, mountain cavern tunnel. I got ten white dragon tribal warrior, dr white dragonborn tribal warriors surrounding Garlunder. Uh, a young white dragon attacks once Garlunder is initially secured, and then I have. You can really tell I had the DMG because then I have rolling sphere trap, DMG page one two three, upon escape attempt. Um, little notes here. Like a, like a Raiders of the Lost Ark yep. boulder thing? Classic. Uh, says here, if Garlander survives, he will offer to reward Magnus, uh, with a dwarven mithril armor. And he did survive, so Magnus did get that item. Uh, if Garlander dies, war between Arten and the dragons begins. That would have been bad and would have been a totally different direction for the campaign, honestly. Um, given what happened. Uh, and then I also have a note. Word of the party's deeds at Austin has spread. Garlander will recognize them. And then I actually... I have some quick notes for me. I've got uh, the initiative of the, ha the Half-Red Dragon veterans, their AC, their hit bonus. Same thing for the Tribal Warriors, the White Dragon. I have its breath weapon noted down. And then I have uh, all the stats for the Rolling Sphere Trap noted down. And uh, having got those, having, you know, spoken all the notes that I can, I can also tell you that I, uh, I recall pretty well... Well, okay, I, can, I, I remember a few things about what was going down around the time of this session because of stuff in the notes. For example, um, I mentioned that the Dragon King, King Reuben, was the one killed that started the uh, war between the Screech Owls and the Dragons. Um, that name, Reuben, is definitely, and it's something I noticed in the notes coming up as well, I was definitely playing the first Jagged Alliance for the first time around the time that I did these notes because a lot of the names are names of characters from the first Jade Alliance game like Reuben, Skits, uh, 
Biff. Anyways, so that that'll keep coming up. Um, the other thing is that, well, I had also I know that I had just been playing the game Wolfenstein: The New Order uh, around this the time of this session because I just sort of basically I had just been doing the level of that game where you infiltrate the labor camp um and that gave me the idea to like as their handler in the empok just sort of float the idea like garlanders being held in a secure location uh like a prison basically you might be able to like sneak yourselves you know a new hope yourselves into the secure area by pretending to be like Valfarine Draglin guy is a dragonborn. You guys could pretend to be his captives that he's bringing to like put in with Ambassador Garlander, and then you could break out that way. And uh, the players did end up going with that plan. So what happened was, in fact, like that note that I have initially about the two. Uh, red dragon half red dragon veterans it's like one of the it's like the half dragon template example stat block in the monster manual half red dragon veterans um i listed two of them there but i don't think the players even fought them i think the players smuggled themselves by those guards and then got directly into the prison secured garlander took out the uh, white dragonborn tribal warriors who are a bit more just like thugs. And then when they were escaping, that's when a white dragon itself uh, came down to fight them, their first time fighting a dragon, albeit a a young one. And uh, then on their way out, they had to escape a rolling sphere trap because I had my DMG. And uh, all that to say get flattened? that they did make it out and they did save Ambassador Garlander. And prevented the huge war from ensuing. Yeah, at exactly. Least that way. Which, like, again, that would have... It's, it's fascinating to me to note that I have that note there that says, like, if, he, if this works, this happens. If it doesn't, this happens. Because, um... I think it would have been like a pretty substantial divergence in the plot line if that war had gone differently. Cool. And did you did you like keep things open so that it could be a bottleneck point like that? And had things gone differently, you would have incorporated that? I mean, judging by those notes, apparently I had. I just, um, <laughs> I don't know what I had in store. I just like... Past Tom had very different ideas. I mean, yeah, it's just like I have these two lines. One has a check mark and one has an X. And it's like, if Garlander survives, check mark. If Garlander dies, X. And I, if the check mark and the X had been swapped, I, uh, I don't know what I would have done. But apparently I would have done something. Apparently I was ready for it. But yeah, I mean, uh, launching into Act 3 with, like, um, you know, a lot of uh, things that are sort of 
traditional Dungeons and Dragons. Not only do we have a classic, you know, New Hope, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper maneuver? We also have a, a rolling sphere trap, and we have our first encounter with a real dragon. So there you go. So what about yours? Well, this was an interesting adventure. Um, chapter 7, Into the Wild. Um, because, as you might recall from the end of the previous adventure, uh, it ended on kind of a, a cliffhanger, a big, a big moment, as the players are given their mission by Melville. He says that he wants them to follow the map that they found to Brazil, uncover whatever operation the Martian-German alliance has going on there, uh, steal some identities and a ship, and try to infiltrate the alliance to see who's in charge. And while that's going on, Melville is going to investigate uh, the Bureau, the House of Lords, and try to figure out who's trustworthy and who is otherwise. At this point, uh, the players had basically uncovered that there's kind of an invasion of the body snatchers style plot going you on. That sounds so crazy is like when you said Melville is going to the House of Lords to see who can be trusted. I was in my head like nobody can be trusted in the House of Lords. Oh, they blew up the lantern. I like I literally had that realization as if it was like previously on and i was like oh shit that's right <laughs> that's right uh, it's funny it's because i was literally picturing peaky blinders season five like it's the exact i'm glad moment that, uh, it's like, that this plot can evoke those images in your head it's a, it's that exact moment where it's like don't worry we're gonna we're gonna get him and then he goes out to the car and oh man oh man kaboom yeah they go outside and the lantern just explodes in a giant fireball. And so my intent with this adventure going into it was to allow the players to sort of role play the aftermath of that. But I figured that the bulk of this adventure was going to be them going to Brazil and, you know, investigating as Melville suggested. But the players totally had other ideas. So what ended up happening is a lot of like character role playing and further investigation into all of the stuff that they were already investigating in the previous adventure. Um, I'll I'll get into it, but they they look at, they look more into uh, Jack the Ripper. They start investigating the explosion of the lantern, and uh, also they revisit the Crystal Palace, the the site of the uh, the assassination, and investigate there more as well. So it, this was a really interesting one because it wound up kind of being a, a a session of connective story tissue where the players recover from the the big moment that they just had and like basically collect themselves. They they revisit everything that they were doing in the moments leading up to their their ship exploding. And then finally circled around and we just get to Brazil at the end of this adventure. So it was just it was a really interesting one because the players had other plans. Like I was like, all right, this big thing happened, but come on, man, there's a war a brewing. You got to get on to the next point. And they're all like, no, 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 we got to look into this more. Something's not right. So um, so I let them. I absolutely let them. And uh, first, 
I had them roleplay those moments after the explosion. In my notes here, I describe, like, how each of them is thrown backwards and, like, you know, something different happens. I had them each roll on that critical fails percentile table that I have that determines, like, you know, how bad your injuries are. And, uh... Most of them got away with just some some damage. Lady Anna being you know the who fast I bet hero. isn't okay. Is that robot that? guy? But that guy's in trouble. The robot guy. Oh, Reese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things that are in trouble here. But uh, starting with the players who are outside, Lady Anna, being a fast hero, was able to do do a reflex check and avoided getting damaged. Uh, McGrath being like the strong tough hero uh, he falls backwards and he took a bunch of damage but he's got like insane constitution so it really didn't do that much to him it was mostly sort of subdual uh, Thomas Morwood though got it really bad and uh, he was temporarily paralyzed in an extreme pain um, and at this point as well I should note that they their investigation into Jack the Ripper they had narrowed it down to this guy, Dr. Bagster, who was the royal physician, and he had been, you know, in the area. They'd found out all this stuff about him, like, eating raw meat while leering at ladies in the nearby brothel. They had captured him. They were going to interrogate him next, but then the lantern explodes, and he died in the explosion. So they're, like, really furious about that because they've lost a huge lead, uh, the lantern is completely destroyed. There's just a husk of it left. I had the steampunk fire brigade show up, and they used those glass orbs filled with fire retardant, the old-timey... Justice! Uh, it, this is old, old uh, fire extinguisher methods. They took my um, justice from me! <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they start realizing, like, everything they've just lost. They've lost their ship, but they've also... Quelm was on board. <gasps> Nathan Garrett is nowhere to be found. Reese is gone. Uh, Abendroth is also pissed off because he's been dumping all of this research time into inventing, like, a Tesla rifle for himself. And now all that progress has been reset. So they're all just, like... Super unhappy, really upset by this one. Yeah, it was there was a lot of fallout there. And so they like they are all they all go back to Abendroth's apartment that used to be Professor Sutter's apartment to to heal. Basically, Morwood recovers after a bunch of fortitude checks and like saves on that one. Um, And they it's the middle of the night, so they stay there overnight and in the, ne- the next morning, they start making their plans to, like, get back on track and pick up the pieces and figure out what to do. And Abendroth decides, okay, well, the only thing to do is to build ourselves a new ship. We gotta have, like, the latest tech. We gotta have our own ship. We can't trust anybody else to build it because they might sabotage it. So he goes, my next invention project is just gonna be building our- ourselves a new ride. Where are you gonna um, get that lift wood? Ah, well, I mean, they have they have their connections. They have their Martian connections. But uh, so he said he goes, OK, so first we got to do that. Uh, the first stop is their warehouse full of Sutter's inventions and things like that. They go to the warehouse 
And while they're, you know, going through all the stuff they have access to there, and this gave me another opportunity to, like, roll out a bunch of other funny inventions that uh, Sutter has, things that they might find useful. And uh, Man, you know what I would have had? Is what? I would have had the spruce moose from... Do you know from The Simpsons when Mr. Burns oh, yeah. has a little plane <laughs> that he wants to get and in? And then a shrink ray. Well, I, I would have, like that and then like th there is obviously supposed to be a way that either it expands or that you shrink down but that part is just missing like <laughs> it's like well it'd be perfect if you uh, if you if you were the right size i don't know <laughs> well i didn't have that but as they're going through their stuff on the main like table that's always covered with blueprints and things abendroth finds this big brown paper wrapped package he unwraps it and it's the lightning rifle that he had been working on completed like and it even has his initials carved into the stock oh, time what's going on so shit's getting weird the players are really starting to get confused um so they set about getting stuff ready uh to build the lantern too but they know that in the meantime they're going to need a ship so they talk to Melville, and he arranges for Morwood's old ship to be returned to him and reinstated. And his old ship is like an air battleship. It's this gigantic ship uh, that can go on sea or in the air, but it's not submersible. Um, it really is just like a cross between a battleship and a zeppelin. And uh, it's cr it, it, I had as, a, as just a fun little story detail, um, it was under the command of one captain bonnie who was i was very inspired by the historical pirate Anne bonnie who kind of she became an infamous pirate but she also sort of disguised herself as a man to do so and so uh captain bonnie is a woman disguised as a man currently piloting the wild uh, morwood's old ship and then morwood regains command of it i um, um i just want to make a reference do you ever play uh the game iron brigade Iron Brigade. Is, I think I know the one you mean. Is that sort of like the the turn the steampunk turn based? Um, is it that one? It's not turn based, but it's like um, it's like a mech warrior cross with a tower defense, and it's by Double Fine, and it's like retro World War One, but everybody's in these. They're called uh, mobile trenches. They're big. Oh, this is the one legs. where you've basically got like a foxhole turret that you can then move around like it's a mech, right? Yeah. Um, that is full of great like sort of diesel punk um, contraptions. And so the uh, central like base in that game is a big like aircraft carrier slash battleship that like it definitely like... It obviously it can go on water, but then at one point it like grows mechanical legs and like crawls up onto land. And then also at one point it like shoots off into space and becomes a spaceship. It just seems like a perfect fit for the setting of your game. Absolutely. Um, and then there was the one, I think it's called iron cast is the one I was thinking of. But a, a very, a very similar sort of, it's that diesel punk uh, sort of World War One esque kind of a thing. 
There's the new real-time strategy. I'm trying to think of this specific one, but of course I can't because there's there's so many that have similar titles and similar subjects. There's the new game, uh, the real-time strategy game from the artist. uh, I I think it's Jakob Rosalski. He's a a Polish artist. Um, Do you know the board game Scythe? Uh, no, I don't. It has this, like, very iconic kind of, uh, Soviet World War One art style. But anyways, Iron Harvest, like, so Scythe is a board game based on his crazy sort of, uh, reimagined, uh, like, Warsaw Revolution era paintings. And then the whole time he had been sort of cooking up, like, oh, I want to do, like, a full strategy game of it. And now that... The demo just came out on Steam, actually. Iron Harvest. You should check it out. It's very good. Oh, I have heard of that one. Yeah, that does look really good. Here it is. I was thinking of Ironclad Tactics. <laughs> Which is, again, it's a, this one is turn-based. It's, uh, it's almost like tower defense side, like sideways, almost like uh, Plants vs. Zombies kind of view. Um, but it also has like the diesel diesel punk thing and uh, et cetera. It has iron in the title. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Ironclad tactics. Is iron punk. Anyway, I digress. I digress. Uh, the player, if Morwood has his ship returned to them, so the players now have a new ride. But they don't take off right away. They want to pursue their investigation further. McGrath, in particular, is really curious because, as you might recall, he encountered a friend of his past Partout as they were beginning their investigation. And he has started to suspect that maybe past Partout has something to do with the strange goings-on. Uh, this was also a plot development that I had not planned in advance. I was just going to have past Partout, hence his name, just appear sort of anywhere they turn up that he might be needed as sort of a running gag. Now McGrath is suspicious that, oh, you know, I saw my friend immediately before all of this stuff went down. So he starts looking into it more, and uh, I improvised this entire thing. I just had this side story about Passepartout, you know, takes part in these these pit fights, uh, frequents the brothel, and has been seen cavorting with Dr. Bagster but nobody's really sure what they're talking about. And I kind of left it up, hanging in the air like that. Um, And uh, McGrath really didn't know what to make of it, but he did not get far in the investigation. Uh, The players also start investigating the scene of the explosion of the lantern, uh, hoping to find some trace of their friends. And I had them discover a lot of claw marks in a nearby alleyway, implying that Nathan Garrett had gotten away but maybe wolfed out and is like off on a berserker rage somewhere. Um, and again, I was sort of just running running with all of this because I had not anticipated that the players would want to delve deeper into these little side plots right away. Um, but I, it was great. It was great fun. It was really fun for me um, sort of constructing these extra mysteries. And to go behind the DM screen here... Uh, I was noting down all of this because my intent is to pull a Back to the Future Part 2 where the players are going to go back in time and they are going to be revisiting key parts of the story so far and then other things that have gone on sort of behind the scenes and in other locations simultaneously. Uh, So this adventure, in a few adventures time, 
we're going to revisit all these events from a different perspective. And they are going to then find out that, in fact, they are behind things like, where did Garrett go? Well, we find out that he, they collected him and he's with them right now. Um, and of course, Avendroth finishes his rifle and delivers it to himself so that he can use it sooner than it would have been otherwise if he'd actually had to work on it through the entirety of the invention process. But um, if they manage to get Nathan out of there, then I, I things are looking up for Quelm. Cause, uh, oh, yes, absolutely. Um, but what about Reese? Is that guy just... Well, man, I... You know, I don't want to tip the hand too soon, but of course, we're talking about the DM side of it. So, uh, all of this, again, this, a lot of things kind of fell into place organically. Uh, Abendroth saying, we got to have a new ride and starting to work on the Lantern 2. I'd always intended for another Lantern to be built and then swapped with the original when they go back in time so that it's the new one that explodes and they make off with their original. Um... That had always been my intent, and again, it just sort of happened organically because Abendroth was like, "God, I'm not going to let the bad guys take away this thing from us. We got to rebuild." So, um, after a bunch of character moments, getting all these things, uh, investigating a lot of loose ends, but not actually making that much headway into those investigations. Um, after all of that, then they decide, okay. We've got our new ship, uh, the Wild. We have to proceed to Brazil and see what's going on there. And uh, the end of this adventure was the beginning of what I had intended this one to be. Uh, it's borrowed heavily from uh, an adventure from D20 Past uh, on page 89. And this one... In D20 Pass, this adventure setup is that the Nazis are trying to find the Fountain of Youth, but uh, I just had it that there is a giant uh, deposit of the crystals that they're using as a power source underneath a Mayan shrine somewhere in Brazil, and I have uh, a map from this adventure that I just used for that because it's a map of this jungle. It shows the shrine. It shows the base camp. It's got an airstrip and then it has a big like top secret stamp on top of it. So it's a, a perfect little campaign prop for this. And uh, the beginning of this one, uh, it's actually very similar to sort of an MPOC mission is the jungle's too thick for them to land their enormous ship. So they, uh, they sort of skydive in, parachute into the jungle, and then sneak their, they're sneaking their way towards the airstrip that they have on their map. And on their way there, they see uh, a jeep full of German soldiers just having a smoke and like shooting at wildlife and fucking around. And they try to sneak past, but they accidentally engage them. They have to kill a bunch of them. One of them is about to get away. There's a brief chase. Uh, Lady Anna pulls off a really good like long shot basically she had uh, a special ability because of her gunslinger class where she could use a pistol but like have an extreme range on it and like make a shot from far away so she did this really impressive shot as he's driving away with her pistol and just like one eye closed and uh, headshots the driver and they grab the german uniforms in the jeep they disguise themselves 
and they set off through the jungle in the jeep towards the the german base camp and that was where the adventure concluded has that ever happened to you where your players just like hijack your plans and you find yourself having to like make up a story on the fly because they're going in a totally different direction than what you thought um it happens less in the mpog games just because of the way i've sort of laid it out where like I think the players kind of understand that, like, you know, I've sort of talked about how there's the division between the operations and, like, when I give the players downtime. I think the players generally understand that, like, in the downtime, that is when they can do whatever they want. And then in the operations, it's going to be more prescriptive in terms of um, me saying, like, okay, the MPOC has this mission for you. But again... I do try to leave it open how they approach that mission. I've just, you know, I I don't think there's ever been a time where I gave them a mission and then they went and did something like completely not the mission. It wasn't even quite that. It's it's sort of like they went, okay, we've got our mission, but our characters really need to like gather themselves back up after this moment before they even think about going on the mission. It was just interesting because I had always, you know, like I said, I intended to like role play the big moment at the beginning where they've lost. It seems like they've lost everything. But then I figured, okay, they'll pick themselves back up. They'll dust themselves off and be like, all right, we have a mission to complete. Now it's personal. I figured it was going to be like a real like now it's personal. Let's get to Brazil. And while there was part of that, it it definitely was the the players just sort of taking their role playing seriously and going no we need a moment we really need a moment to figure out what's going on here and to collect our thoughts and like decide our next move without rushing into things which now that i'm saying that like that's a kind of a big deal for my party <laughs> i believe i've said in the past like my party really doesn't tend to strategize much uh even at the best of times they are very impulsive and love to like dive headlong into an adventure it's the kind of thing where like if they are approaching you know the entrance to a dungeon and there are two guards there rather than try to scope it out see if there's another way in see if there are any traps any other guards you know maybe sneak their way in no they'll just like straight up walk up to the guards engage them in the conversation if the conversation goes south they'll kill them and they'll be on their way so it was it was pretty rare now that i think about it to actually have a time where the players are like uh uh we really got to like process what is going on and slow down, you know, less rushing into things and more like taking stock of what we have and how we should proceed. So is it time to go down to this thing on the tavern? Yeah, I think it is. Oh boy. Uh, I think uh, it might finally be open to the public again. Don't yeah, but they've anything. got an illusion seated uh, in every second seat. Bus. You have to. Bus. You can eat here, but you have to sit across from an illusion. As long as Man, if only. Now away, that I'm saying that, it's like that's actually tell. not a problem. If only we had that ability, so you could still like sit across from the person, but it's just like an illusion, like an illusory Skype of them sitting at the other table. Or like. Uh... Man, this just sounds like something uh, Krieger from Archer would make. <laughs> Some sort of hologram to hang out with. Yeah, and then the hologram will choke you. So, um, 
Do you want to start this one? Sure. Um, I, I just, uh, I pulled this one at random. I, I was trying to think of something really fun, like racking my brain trying to think of a really good deep cut from an old RPG, but I was coming up with nothing, so um, I jumped into back our, into our friend, the Encyclopedia Magica, Volume 1, and I want to talk to you, Tom, about some bottles. Bottles. Uh, 99 Magical, bottles on the wall. Well, there certainly are close to nine. There might be 99 bottles in the Encyclopedia Magica. Um, there are certainly a lot of them, and I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I'm going to talk about uh, a few that, you know, these are those those dippy sort of D&D first edition, love their puns uh, kinds of items. You can tell that the people who created these items were big fans of, like, Piers Anthony novels. Um so from Polyhedron Newzine, issue 23 is the Bottle of Booze. When, item, when opened, this item emits a chorus of loud snarls, hisses, and booing noises. <laughs> All within 60 feet must make a morale check. Those not affected by morale suffer a minus two penalty to attack and damage rolls for six turns with no saving throw. That is brutal. Come on, just make it a bottle of vicious mockery. Yes, exactly. That's what it is. This is just a bottle of vicious mockery. Um, how about the bottle of graffiti from Dragon Magazine issue uh, one fifty eight? This ornate brass bottle has a lead stopper covered with special seals and sigils that are better left untranslated. If the stopper is removed, four air elementals armed with spray cans pop out and paint rude slogans and obscenities all over everything and everyone in the area. They cannot be ordered back into the bottle or restrained in any way except by using a sensor of controlling air elements. Hey, that's uh, that item is still in 5th uh, edition. The sensor. I don't know about the graffiti one. Not the I, I'm just wondering about though. the graffiti one is like, you know, somebody catches you after you let out that insanity. Can you fresh prints it? Can you pretend like maybe you were spraying on some deodorant? Like, huh? Yeah, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, the bottle of pleasant odors. Dragon Magazine issue 30. The bottle of pleasant odors was developed to uh, de- developed for kitchens to mask undesirable odors, even burnt food and rotten eggs. Uncorking this bottle causes any room up to 30 feet square to smell of roses, lemon, or pine. They basically just invented a Glade plug-in, a magic Glade plug-in. It's the uh, vanilla cupcake scent. It's a good one. Uh, let's do Let's do one more. Let's do Thuba's Afridi bottle from a 1993 collector card. Number 465. <laughs> Thuba's magical bottle contains not one, but two Afridi inside of it, a mated pair. Thuba is a particularly cruel and punishing master, and the Afridi pair loathe him. However, he is wise and thorough, and he has never slipped when issuing his commands. The Afridi wait and plot for the day they may gain their revenge upon Thuba. He, however, knows very well their hatred for him and has several surprises for them should they ever try to disobey. That that reads like there's nothing about that. It's just a bottle that contains two Afridis, but uh, that absolutely reads like flavor text on the back of a card. Yeah. Uh, villain not included. Where's my Thuba? Yeah. Where is Thuba? I guess he must be a 1993 collector card number 464. 
<laughs> like, like I, I kind of, I like the plot device of having a villain that has like an angry Efreet that he is bound to his service and like that you could maybe turn that on him. But uh, they didn't even go all the way with that plot hook there. They just were like, this is the thing. Yeah, see, this is this is what I, the thing I don't like, like I love the Encyclopedia Magica, but that is the kind of entry that bugs me because it's like, it's just a bottle with a frites in it. You could have just said like bottle of a frites. All of this plot stuff is completely unnecessary within the context of the Encyclopedia Magica. Like that's just sort of like saying, you know, here's a special, very specific item from this one campaign that does nothing unusual except that it's like really deeply intertwined with the backstory of this one adventure. Anyway, that's all I got. What'd you bring? Oh man, I I fished into the old the olden things of yore, let me tell you, McGill. I went back and got probably one of the first published adventures of a role-playing game that I ever read, I think. I remember going back to episode one, session zero, talking about Big Eyes, Small Mouth, the anime role-playing game, which even had a D20 incarnation as I was reminded while doing my research for this one. But um, BESM 2nd Edition, the one that I started playing with, uh, if you got the DM screen, it was like a pretty cheap like uh, plastic card kind of thing. Um, the art was like not... terribly inspired like generic anime art um and it had like i don't know some bsm rules inside i can't tell you if they were any useful i don't think they were very good but um i mean one thing i did notice looking back at it is that it includes like an armory and one of the weapons included is a combat yo-yo and like I feel like that says a lot about your game if that's in the standard like DM screen list of items. Like I have the vampire one. You look at it right here. I mean, it's got things you need to know for vampires. You know, like um, how much damage does a certain amount of sunlight do to a vampire? We got weapons. We got sap, brass knuckles, club, mace. Knife, rapier, sword, katana, greatsword, small axe, large axe, great axe, stake. That's a special one for vampires. Spear. No combat yo-yo. I don't know what kind of RPG has a combat yo-yo in its arsenal, except for BESM. I a combat yo-yo? I bet I can name Maybe one. Maybe Shadowrun. What were you thinking? Oh, the the Tazzyland. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah! It could probably. I bet be there are combat uh, yo-yos after there. The bomb. Yeah, that's possible. Anyway, so going back to this, this is uh, it, it's the basically the GM screen for BSM Second Edition. It's like it's very cheap. It's a very cheap product. So included with it was a coverless, um, just like paper. It, it looked kind of like uh, an old like 
computer game manual used to look. It was just like black and white, uh, like staple spine, but like, you know, not even with a clear back or front cover, just like, you know, black and white paper stapled together. And this contained an adventure called So We Have an Obelisk. And it's it's such a weird name for your uh, adventure. It's so, comma, we have dot, 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 an obelisk, question mark? I wonder if that's like a reference to something. I was wondering that myself today, but I have no, I, I mean, it's always you, just You keep stuck talking, I'm going to see if I can find it. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's stuck in my head as like weird, you know? Like, I, I also just want to say, like, what kind of melee weapons table has battle axe, baton or club, bow, wooden staff, boken, wooden sword, broadsword, katana, longsword, knife, naginata, bladed staff, nunchaku, yari, spear, wakazashi, short sword, whip, combat yo-yo. Like, I get that there's a very, like, Japanese flavor to this, which makes sense because it's supposed to be an anime game, but, like... Maybe it's maybe they were just crazy about that yo-yo girl cop, you know? That old movie, that Japanese movie. Um, okay, so now I'm going to talk about the adventure. First of all, can't have your adventure without a meaningless quote. First off, we got a quote from Shakespeare's Macbeth. It says, shake off this downy sleep death's counterfeit and look on death itself. Up, up, and see the great Doom's image. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Role-playing games for needing a quote. I'm just going to... Doom's read. image? Like Doctor Doom? I'm just going to read the overviews for this adventure. Because actually, it kind of blew my mind when I was all new to RPGs. And I read this, and I was like, whoa. The possibilities. So, part one. The PCs all witnessed the death of their respective worlds. Several weeks of destruction began with the sudden appearance of a mysterious obelisk and culminated in Armageddon. As they feel their own lives fading, the characters each hear a delicate voice offering them salvation. This voice pulls them into a new world, one torn by a devastation paralleling the destruction they have just left. There is still a chance to save this new place. The PCs find themselves standing on a muddy road at the edge of a polluted lake with a group of people who feel familiar to them, the other PCs. The other PCs may even resemble lost friends and comrades, but the true bond the PCs share is the result of their duties as Guardians of Order. Also, the company that made Big Eyes Small Mouth is called Guardians of Order. The people of this world, mostly peasants and religious zealots, believe the new arrivals to be great spirits sent to save them. The PCs will be escorted to a tent village at the base of this world's obelisk, where the priests will introduce them to their teacher, the head of the religion. The teacher will try and give the PCs what direction he can and will offer suggestions on how to stop the obelisk. In truth, the teacher is a member of the AmeriCorps Empire and will try and prevent the PCs from interfering. Can the characters find the voice that first brought them here? Will they unravel the teacher's deceptions? Will this world also be lost? So now I'm going to skip ahead a whole bunch. 
to part two. Well, are we going to get the answers to those questions? Well, we're going to skip ahead to part two. And hopefully it's going to follow up okay. It won't, you know, hopefully it won't be like that time we played Mechanoid Invasion and then part two was a completely different thing about living on a spaceship. Uh, remember that? That was right here in this tavern. Remember that? <laughs> okay. So we have an obelisk part two. Another quote, this time from Tennyson. Hold thou the good, define it well, for fear divine philosophy should push beyond her mark and be procurous to the lords of hell. <sighs> good. I've, I've, I'm really in the headspace for this adventure, I bet. Now, <laughs> for this second part of the, the adventure, it is assumed that all of the players have worked through part one. Part 2 is considerably more open-ended, far less linear, and much more serious. It will highlight a different style of anime, moving from the lighter medieval fantasy elements of the first part to a grim and melancholy futuristic empire, where opulence and luxury are bought with the blood and souls of those unfortunate enough to be harvested. In this place, the PCs will have no easy choices and must force themselves to answer the hardest of questions. At the end of part one, the PCs are caught in a wave of the obelisk's energies, either because they stopped it or because they failed to halt the harvesting procedure. The explosive release of energy destroys the obelisk, but the backwash pulls the PCs into its homeworld, the center for the United Dominions of the AmeriCorps Imperium. AmeriCorps. They find themselves unharmed on a new world, a megalopolis of glass and steel that stretches across the horizon. They will be met by an agent of AmeriCorps who quickly recognizes their abilities to manipulate the obelisk gate technology via the symbols of balance. He will begin by offering generous hospitality and slowly build up to offering them jobs in the company. The pay is good, quite close to wish fulfillment to be exact, but the hours are long and the company does not worry too heavily about moral choices. The PCs will get to wander through the territories of AmeriCorps, pondering their choices. Do they join and cause the deaths of thousands of worlds like their own homes? Or do they fight and jeopardize the colonists on a thousand worlds? Or do they do nothing and let balance remain unchanged? That'd be a weird choice as they went with the third one. But um, It's just doing nothing? Yeah. That's like, uh, nah, I'm not really feeling this part two. Okay, bye. Don't this, give you your players that one. option. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why it even says that. I guess they just felt like rule of threes, you know? It's just dramatic effect. <laughs> What's that great quote from Clerks the Animated Series? Someday a great, great and horrible tragedy will befall you and you'll wonder if it was cruel fate or if it was Leonardo, Leonardo, or some third thing. Who knows? Who can say for sure? But yeah, I thought that was a pretty wild thing to be packing with their um, kind of, you know, poorly produced uh, GM screen is like, hey, here's an adventure that starts one way and then goes a completely different way. And also, like, there's no resolution to that part, too. It's just like, well, you know, maybe they'll fight the Empire forever or maybe they'll go across a thousand worlds something i don't know but yeah it just straight up launches from like i like also that the like overview for the first one even goes to the trouble of saying like they start on a muddy road it's like yeah just like an rpg does 
But talk about escalation. You go from that money road to like a glass megalopolis of AmeriCorps. Yeah, man. You go from the small mouth all the way to the big eyes. Yeah. Which also reminds me, while I was doing my um, uh, research, I found another um, a- another BSM product. It's uh, Big Ear Small Mouse. <laughs> it was like... Um, you know, like uh, Rescue Rangers and all that kind of thing. It was like a spin-off of BSM, but for like Disney adventure stories. <laughs> the the bootleg knockoff. Yeah, I don't know. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's an old RPG product that I have. One of the oldest that I have. I mean, probably not the oldest. In terms of overall age, but like oldest in terms of like one of the first RPG products I ever got. So that was uh, session 18, episode 19. It's uh, the 16th of June. If you want to get in touch with me, Tom Lando, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at nar underscore nog. N-A-R underscore N-O-G. And uh, again, I don't think anybody's tweeted me, but I'll be there. Uh, If you want to check us out on Facebook or maybe message McGill, message either of us, you can message us on our Facebook Compare and Campaign on Facebook and message us and we'll see that. And we've also got the aforementioned blog where you can see supplemental materials and relevant pictures, videos, and uh, links. Um, Show notes, basically, uh, under comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Yeah, if if you're listening on Spotify, maybe give us a follow. If you're listening some other way, I don't know how that works, but I know that Spotify has a follow thing, so, you know could help us out follow us tell your friends tell your yeah. players force your players to listen to this and just keep or don't just keep listening, keep your players you know? from listening to this wait well i i my players listen to this so i can't talk about stuff that i've got like i can't talk about a thing until i've done it you know but anyway ah uh, not me